Two Worlds with Two Different Futures for Humanity. Today we're reading The Lord of Death and the Queen of Life by Homer Eon Flint. I'm Sean. And I'm Mimi. And this book is from an alternate dimension. This is the oldest book we've read on the show. It was originally published in 1919, exactly 100 years ago next month. In the Argosy All Story Weekly. Uh, But the copy we found looks like a reprint by Ace from the 60s. With a pretty funny cover. (laughs) Um, Yeah, uh, based on the title, I was assuming this might be a fantasy story, but... With the picture, I had no idea what to expect. It's like an upskirt shot of a pissed-off sumo wrestler. (laughs) It's like that what-he-sees-what-she-sees meme. (laughs) I was able to find a lot more information about Homer Eon Flint than I was expecting, just given how old this book was and how he doesn't seem to be particularly well-known. But a lot of his early works and information about him was all preserved by his granddaughter, who held on to all of his manuscripts on, like, newspaper copy sheets. She was able to get a lot of that stuff republished, and, like, the originals, I think, are disintegrated by now. And she also saved newspaper articles about him. Uh, So there's a lot more information, but you have to buy her book for (laughs) $3.99 and... That was more than I was willing to spend on research for this episode. (laughs) And I did find a few other uh, bits of information about him in a book of, like, local history about people from his county. Talked about how he was inspired by writers like H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, Conan Doyle. The reason I think this is from an alternate dimension is I imagine there's a dimension where uh, Homer Eon Flint is H.G. Wells or (laughs) Jules Verne. Where he became famous. Yeah, and he inspired science fiction. That's the way it kind of feels, like the Berenstein Bears (laughs) thing. Like, this book accidentally is from a different timeline. Yeah. This was a science fiction book, but like a political science fiction book. Yeah. Um, And a lot of his other works was also near-future political fantasy. Some of them have titles like The De-Evolutionist and The Emancipatrix. (laughs) Um, And he did describe himself as a socialist, which I think explains these stories a little bit and what he was getting at. Um, But one of the craziest things I learned about him while looking into this is... The big mystery surrounding his death. So he died very young, a few years after writing this in 1924, in a car accident. And he was found to have been the driver of a wrecked auto that went, it went off the grade. He was crushed under the car and they weren't able to figure out exactly what had happened. But a known criminal 
had witnessed this and I think basically said that he had been robbing a bank and trying to get away and crashed his car. But the way he described the holdup supposedly was physically impossible. And his family doesn't believe that he could have been robbing a bank. And they think that he was murdered by this bank robber who then tried to pin it on him. Probably do a podcast about it. Get to the (laughs) truth. Well, all the police records uh, were destroyed in a fire. Wow. So the cloud of suspicion may never be lifted. Do you know if the two stories in this were published separately? I think that they were. They were at least written separately and then I think published together as this collection. And the stories were also kind of a series of books. Yeah, I can see like serially published in a magazine. Yeah, so there were more stories about these same characters. So let's start with The Lord of Death. Did your copy have this picture? No! What? It's just the same guy from the front, but just a close-up of the face. (laughs) The Lord of Death starts super boring. The four main characters are flying their space car to Mercury... So there's a doctor, a geologist, an engineer, and an architect. And at this point in the story, they don't really have character. And they they all blur together. Pretty much interchangeable. But it's mainly just explaining how they are traveling through space, uh, which is by magnet. (laughs) Yeah, you know, you repel yourself from the earth with magnets. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's all about pointing different powerful magnets to the correct poles of the planet to attract or push away from wherever you want to go. And then also space is full of electricity, which I think I've read other things where that was the theory, that there's just electricity flying around in space. He didn't know. He's doing his best. Yeah, it's, it's fine. It's just that's it, the focus was on the science and the science was just him, his made up stuff. So while they hang out in their car, they talk about how it works. And then in the like the worst TV show expository dialogue fashion where one cares, <laughs> well, as you know, or as I said earlier, space is full of electricity or you should know you designed it. It works like this. <laughs> They, they speculate about what they're going to find on Mercury and whether there's a city there or if it's empty. And uh, then they arrive and it's completely dead, but they find ancient ruins of a huge city. They wander around the city. They figure out that they were making weapons in these factories, futz around with some other stuff. They touch things that instantly turn to dust. They're rather unscientific in the way they (laughs) do everything. Just handling stuff and throwing it around. Um, And then eventually they discover um, like a big library full of audio tapes. Which one of them is able to decode and figure out how to play them back. And they find another audio tape in this big house that they decide to go to which is when the story switches narrative 
to the Lord of Death, which is the story on one of the tapes. And the story on the tapes was great. Yeah, this is when the book turns from <laughs> so terrible and boring to really awesome. It's a autobiography of the strongest man to ever live on Mercury, Stroker, son of Stroke. <laughs> It's told in the fashion of like an ancient text that's been translated. It has footnotes and uh, translators notes about what certain words could possibly mean or like different cultural references. And then the text kind of has strange verb tense usage or weird grammar. And I think it's just really effective. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> you really feel like you're reading a translation of autobiography from this crazy guy. And I felt like you could really hear his voice, too, <laughs> coming through the tape. Well, they also said that th- that tape was just louder than any other tape. <laughs> so, I am Stroker. I am Stroker, son of Stroke, the armorer. I am Stroker, a maker of tools of war. Stroker, the mightiest man in the world. Stroker, whose wisdom outwitted the hordes of Clow. Stroker, who has never feared and never failed. Let him who dares dispute it. I am Stroker. (laughs) He also has the best mom. Uh, His mom seemed like almost a villain. It seemed (laughs) most people were afraid of her, including... Including Strokor. That's where he gained his huge frame and his sound heart. (laughs) And it was her stalwart figure that caught his father's fancy. (laughs) Um, She's like the biggest woman and the strongest warrior. On Mercury. Until Strokor is born. Yeah. And his dad was like the smartest man. The most cunning. Yeah. And he had to be... To survive. <laughs> <laughs> to survive his mom. Yeah. Um, so Strokor inherited his strength and size from his mother and his cunning from his father. So it just goes on with Stroker telling his life story about being a kid and learning life lessons. And then he happens across an old man and a woman who are being attacked and he decides to save them. Not because it's a, the right thing to do. It doesn't seem like saving people is the right thing to do on Mercury. Uh, Survival of the fittest is the morality of Mercury. But he decides to save them because the person attacking them is so inept at fighting, he just has to (laughs) (laughs) destroy him. He's got to step in, put a stop to that. So he meets Maka, who becomes his mentor. And Maka is a stargazing wise man. And he also meets, I originally pronounced it Ave, but it's definitely supposed to be Ave. How, how, how do you know? Because of the end. Oh. We'll get there. Okay, all right. Uh, I forgot. He meets Ave, and later he falls in love with her. But right now, he considers women to be a distraction. And she immediately falls in love with him. Yeah, because he's so huge. But also, she's very small, Right? And not very strong. So he doesn't think she's very attractive at first. <laughs> yeah. And he uh, he turns her down. She never forgives him for it. <laughs> Importantly, he meets Maka and becomes friends with this old man. 
and Maka takes him to meet Edam or Edam, uh, who is a prophet seer type person who has been having visions of another planet, which they deduce is Earth, kind of for no reason. And they talk about this this strange planet where parents actually take care of their young and kind of help each other out. And Stroker is disgusted. <laughs> and I think they, they talk about how that can't really work on Mercury because there's not enough resources and that's why there's so much more competition there. And, and they just view it as immoral <laughs> for a parent to love and care for its child. To help the weak survive. Just let them die. Edam finds this beautiful and like sort of pines to live on this other place where people live in harmony and help each other. And Stroker and Maka are disgusted and they like have a toast to survival of the fittest. Edam, who is both weak and kind of dumb, doesn't take the pledge. So they banish him. But more importantly for Stroker's autobiography, here Maka tells him that, you know, he's great and all, he's the most powerful, but he doesn't have any ambition. He's not doing anything with all his great power. So he thinks about it, and he decides, well, I guess I'll become emperor then. <laughs> well, his first response is, should I just kill this old guy for criticizing me? <laughs> but then he decides he's right. Yeah. <laughs> and he needs to be emperor. And then he just does. It's very easy for him. Yeah, well, he's the best. And then as emperor, he decides he's going to defeat the neighboring empire. And his great sneaky plan is to turn the entire planet into a giant electromagnet. Right. So his enemy has some technology that he doesn't. They have planes, but they're big, like, iron planes. <laughs> and Stroker connects a giant metal tube to the two poles, which apparently turns into a giant electromagnet, and then all of their planes crash. And all their iron weapons and their their iron bullets and everything is stuck to the planet. But Stroker planned ahead and made weapons out of a non-magnetic alloy. And mm -hmm. It's an easy victory. Yep, and so he's the strongest man on Mercury. And the autobiography kind of ends and then starts up again in a more present tense. Like he, he finished and then he started again because new events happen, were happening that he thought he needed to put in his autobiography. And the one is Ave has left him with Adam and they've built a little spaceship and they launch themselves off to Earth. Yeah, he this this was the moment when he was ready to court her. Right. And she's moved way past him. Um Well, she's also found love and caring instead of just just being the strongest yeah. and the smartest. Um And they've decided to travel to a world where that's possible. But that's that's why their names are are yeah. like that cuz they're Adam and Eve. Yep. So then what? Stroker kills everyone else on the planet? <laughs> well, he he has a moment of philosophical thought or something <laughs> where he, he thinks about it and he realizes that eventually 
there'll be a stronger person than him or he'll die or get old and someone will beat him when he's old. And then even in the far future, they may forget about him, even with all his like great power, eventually, um, you know, their civilization will fall apart and then no one will care. So his solution is to kill everyone so that he will forever be the strongest person. And, uh, and then he preserves himself in some kind of glass chamber, right? Yeah. And uh, that's where our four characters come back. They burst into the room with the glass chamber. <laughs> and I can't tell if he was supposed to be alive in that glass chamber. Yeah, they're moving his preserved body in its glass encasing. And then there's like a, a whoops moment and something <laughs> goes wrong. Like they crack it open or something. And his eyes open and it's like, oh my gosh, is he still alive? And then no, he just melts into some kind of decomposed fluid. Mm-hmm. That was That's all that's left. Stroke or son of stroke. And that's the end of the Lord of Death. And then it's the Queen of Life. They'll hop back in their space car. And next stop, Venus. Yeah, they're going to hit Venus on the way back. And in this story versus the Lord of Death, the characters are characters and they have different personalities and interact with each other. Um, And right at the beginning, we discover that the architect is actually a lady. I wonder if this would be cooler if you had like read more of the stories. Oh. Because just us is like, okay, well, we read this one where they don't do anything. (laughs) <laughs> and then this other one where it's like, I'm a woman! <laughs> <sighs> yeah, the doctor discovers it d- doing some doctor stuff. <laughs> she faints. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then uh, he has to take off her clothes because she fainted. And it's like, oh. It's like, it's like that scene in Mulan. Yeah, the, the doctor announces, Gentlemen, I must inform you that Jackson is not what we thought. He, I mean she, is a woman. (laughs) And so then we get a bunch of dialogue, which seemed to be a way for the author to kind of express different opinions about women's rights, Mm -hmm. for him to make a statement about it. So it seems this character, who I think tells them her her name is Billy, kind of just generally prefers to be viewed as a man because it's easier for her to operate in society and be an architect and do these other stuff. She wears... So, yeah, even after being discovered, she continues wearing men's clothing, and it describes her fashion a lot. She's like a a really dapper butch lesbian, basically. Just each of the other scientists have different opinions on women's place in society, and Billy kind of defends herself and uh, argues with them a bit. Yeah, it seemed like Van Emmen, the geologist, mm-hmm. was the most, like, I don't know, the most backwards of them, like, put forward, like, the most... He's the most, like, manly man. Yeah, and then he usually gets shut down. Yeah, it was kind of interesting just because this book was published before women had the right to vote. Right. They didn't mention the right to vote, though, but they did mention other stuff about women being able to get jobs just like men work in the sciences and mathematics and stuff. But no one mentioned the right to vote. (laughs) Oh, they also mentioned owning property and stuff. They're like, they all kind of agreed that women should have these things even though they don't. Yeah. Then they end up arriving at Venus. 
and it's completely surrounded by like a a dome of glass and they're greeted by a tall slenderly built man in a skin tight satin bodysuit <laughs> who's Estra and he takes them into a glass elevator down to the surface and they're surprised that he's able to speak English which find out why later they also have devices that are like universal translators and venus is like the ultimate utopia uh everything on the planet is perfectly under control the air the weather the plants people float around in little bubbles so they're not breathing each other's germs they don't have to walk anywhere unless they want to for fun and they've solved scarcity and there's no conflict yeah, they've eliminated everything disagreeable, including sympathy and pity. So, <laughs> so uh, like someone falls and, and Estra like can't express sympathy. And those things have been replaced with justice. <laughs> um, and Van Emmen has, you know, he can't wrap his head around this. How can, how can you have life without struggle and conflict? Yeah, Van Emmen doesn't see the point in living without... Uh, conflict or competition or he just thinks that the world would fall apart without those things there's also no distinction between the dress of the two sexes so people can wear whatever they want there and yeah they have these translating machines that are like google translate talk into them and it well it's like a complicated steampunk version (laughs) of it they explain how it works a lot this story unlike the first one is just them kind of wandering around and saying look at this wonder and how great our society is over and over again and it's not as enjoyable as the lord of death but also just doesn't work as well because there's still the footnotes but it's like a third person story instead (laughs) of like a translated thing yeah and it just comes off i don't know very disjointed and it's better than the beginning of the lord of death because they have characters that are interesting but not as good as the autobiography because it's it's just i don't know i think that's the problem with utopia stories in general they're just a little little boring (laughs) yeah after wandering around Seeing all the technology. They also go to do a Q&A session in a theater auditorium and a bunch of people from, from Venus show up to watch this Q&A. And so they learn about how they only eat this nutrient soda, which comes okay. in all, all different flavors. <laughs> thousands of flavors. It's like those soda machines where you choose the syrup flavor and the soda base. But it's also made of dirt. <laughs> It's made out of nutrient-rich dirt. So they don't have to have space for crops or anything. It's just residential the whole planet round. They made those nutrient sodas sound really good, though. Like the they all sound ones. like La Croix. They're like, oh, it has the most delicate light flavor. I can barely taste it. It's so delicious. I can barely taste this dirt. Uh, yeah, and then they just over everything there's no war no poverty no government no nations there's no investments there's no capital and uh they're unable to like physically leave the planet but they've also developed telepathy so they can listen in to like whispers on earth which is how they've learned all these languages 
and they have books and books and reels of translations of all these different uh, planets they've listened into. Uh, the architect is like, okay, that's it. I'm going to stay. <laughs> she's ready to stay and live with Estra. Yeah, she's kind of fallen in love with Estra a little bit. But then we get to the final part of the story, the battle of the sexes. Seems like there are some kind of prophecies about a bunch of big changes. And so there's some tension about like these visitors arriving here on Venus being part of these big prophecies. And while they're hanging out with Estra, then then Estra is um, brings them to listen in to a big announcement from this researcher, Savarona. He's making this announcement because he's developed a method of juvenation so that people can live forever, but it only works for boys. So people are shocked and upset that he would announce this before he's developed something that would be fair to help men and women live forever. Mm-hmm. It also prevents boys from developing into men so they won't ever know jealousy because they won't ever know love. Yeah, so apparently in this perfect society, the only negative emotion they have they've have been unable to remove is sexual jealousy or competition for mates and they believe that if they just lock everyone in a juvenile state that won't exist anymore. So then Estra decides to make a counter-announcement, which is that Estra's sister has finally figured out how to give birth to a baby whose only father was her mother's brain. (laughs) (laughs) And this would make men superfluous, and they could just produce only daughters. Again, removing the sexual jealousy problem. Right. So... Or mate competition problem. So this sparks an actual battle of the sexes. It seemed kind of more like a riot to me. Yeah. But I guess the whole planet is a city, so who knows how big it was. Yeah. (laughs) Rico. Uh, Well, either way, yeah, fighting breaks out everywhere. So... Estra is like trying to rush the visitors off the planet back to their space car so they can be safe. And the architect is like, no, I want to stay with you. And then Estra is like, Billy, I'm not what you thought. I'm not a man. I'm a woman. (laughs) And it's suddenly gay. And then Estra manages to share the information of this discovery and distribute it to the rest of the women. And that's like her last act before she's crushed to death by a mob of men. And uh, then they leave. There's like a flash forward to a week later where they're still on Venus and everything's just fine again. What? Really? Yeah. And they have a small court case about whether or not they can keep all the translation books since Estra was the owner and she's dead. Huh. <laughs> I guess I guess I forgot about that. Yeah, so it, it that's why I think it's more of like a riot because it seemed like it just happened and then was quickly dissipated and then everyone's like, oh, okay, we'll figure it out. I thought they were like... I thought that was just the visitors, like, sneaking out with the books. No, I think they uh, <laughs> resolved it pretty quickly. Wow. And I'm guessing that's how they were able to translate the Mercury tapes. Oh. Was with those translation books. But then there's a little epilogue at the end where they're on their ship flying back to Earth. And 
it's really confusing where Billy is cooking for everyone and Van Emmen and her are snuggling and acting lovey-dovey and Van Emmen asks her if she's happy this way and she says yes or something like that. Oh, she says, do you like me better this way? Oh, the, oh yeah, okay. And she's also dressed more girly, not uh, in men's clothing. Yeah. And I don't know what that means. Does that mean she learned the lesson to be her sex or that she finds more joy uh, acting what is considered appropriate for the time? Or I was wondering if Homer Eon Flint is suggesting that if the the difficulties for Billy were to be solved, like all the problems she has with living as a woman were to be solved, she would feel more comfortable acting that way or being seen that way if it didn't impact any other part of her life. I wonder if it makes more sense in the context of the other stories. Maybe yeah, it might just be character development or something. Uh, well, I guess I tried to think about this a little bit and what this meant. Because like with all the riots on Venus, I was wondering like, is that a response to current events being written like right before women got the right to vote? Mm-hmm. Like suffragettes were being beaten in the street by mobs of men and being jailed and tortured. But I wasn't sure if it was like just a response to that or like that being influenced by that. Or like if he felt like, you know, like we'll always find differences to fight about or like we'll never resolve competition between the sexes. But then maybe the ending is like there's like hope for humanity and like these two being able to resolve the differences by being in love with each other or something. Yeah, these two polar opposites. But then I was thinking, did he just have, like, it's so out of nowhere, and it's, like, no build-up to this relationship. Mm-hmm. Any sexual tension between was between Billy and Estra. Yeah. Like, she didn't really seem to like Van Emmen that much. And, like, where did this come from? Like, did did Flint have to put this in the book so that it wasn't too gay to, like, get it published? <laughs> or, like... I, I don't know. In 1915, there's a book that came out called Her Land, which was supposed to be a utopia where it's a colony of women who are able to reproduce without men. And it's just another sci-fi utopia that came out pretty close to these. And I wonder if this story was kind of a response or just his take on it or something like that. Probably, definitely... An influence. Well, it's hard to tell because it's an important sci-fi book now. Her Land is one of the first sci-fi books, an early feminist book in America in this time. And so it's hard to tell if it was actually influential then Mm. or if we're just applying that after the fact. Right. But I could see it being related. I don't know. I haven't read it. (laughs) I've heard it's, it's less like fun how great women's society would be without men and more kind of fascist, like controlling breeding and genetics (laughs) of people and like making sure they can only do a certain thing. Well, we'll have to read it and find out. I I don't think it fits with what you would call feminist today. Okay. (laughs) Well, do you have any other additional thoughts about the Lord of Death and the Queen of Life? You talked a little bit about the footnotes. My... Mm -hmm. My personal favorite footnote just said, footnote, probably the dinosaur. 
That was when they were looking at Earth. Um, I enjoyed this book sort of in spite of it. I think the reason Homer Eon Flint isn't up with H.G. Wells and Edgar Rice Burroughs and H.P. Lovecraft and all those people that were writing uh, this kind of stuff at the same time as him is that he's just not a very good writer. He has a good plot and kind of good characters and the story's interesting, but the sentences he puts down are bad and <laughs> tough to read. <laughs> with the exception of the Strokor sections. Yeah, Stroker he should just write everything best. like that. I didn't think it was that bad. I mean, it's all just very stilted and stop and go sentences. And I didn't have a problem with the writing as much as just most of the action is people wander around and look at things. <laughs> um, but that's also other old science fiction. <laughs> It's like, yeah. how does the spaceship work? Well, let me tell you how the spaceship works. <laughs> the, just the difference is, is the way they tell it isn't some crappy sitcom expository <laughs> dialogue, and it's not so difficult to read. Well, I thought it had a really hopeful message overall about the future for humanity, and like, especially when they're on Venus. They kept saying that, like, humans on Earth, they're on their way to becoming more like Venus. We can hope we live in Venus and not the extension of competition that happened on Mercury. Right. Who do you think this book is for? I don't know. Old people? (laughs) I don't think so. Uh, It's kind of cool that it exists. And it's got a neat, like, the story of the author and his granddaughter and this cool little socialist thing. It's interesting that it exists, but the story is more interesting. The story of it existing is more interesting than actually reading it. Who do you think this book is for? I think if you're someone who dreams about fully automated luxury gay space communism, the dream has been alive for a hundred (laughs) years. Um... But if you're into that kind of thing, I might actually recommend The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin. Yeah, I was going to say there's plenty of other <laughs> books that do that and are enjoyable. Maybe it's for sci-fi historians. <laughs> we'll get a kick out of it. Well, I think that's it for The Lord of Death and The Queen of Life. If you'd like to join us next time, we're reading The Sword of Lancor by Howard L. Corey. Um, we're doing a new thing. I just wanted to share a few listener comments. What? These are all from YouTube. If you're listening on YouTube, you might want to try our podcast feed. We update a lot faster there. <laughs> but it's fine if YouTube's your preferred listening thing. You probably just get five podcasts all at once. every six months. <laughs> so Slasher Pepper wrote her laugh. <laughs> With an open mouth emoji. I hope that's a good thing. <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> I'm going to take it as a compliment. <laughs> Zion and only wrote, have a like, good reviews, try a good book. And the first time I read this comment, I totally missed the comma and read it. Have a like, good reviews. <laughs> <laughs> try a good book. <laughs> Um, there have been some sometimes they're good uh, 
I mean, we did those horror books where we read <laughs> books that were good after the bad ones. We're also open to suggestions. Are Rec- we? <laughs> recommendations. <laughs> um, well, I'll read them. <laughs> and Benedict Cumbersnatch wrote, Love this, especially Mimi's laughter. I first stumbled upon The Bog when I was around nine or so. That easy readability, though. So much of my fondness for this book is really simple nostalgia. It was my first glimpse into the horror genre, though Stephen King and Lovecraft subsequently had me hooked, as Talbot's novel was more fantasy, which I still love. Anyway, I tend to reread lots of old favorites, and The Bog has been no exception. On my second rereading, though, my head spun with all the inconsistencies in the text, and I found myself feeling disgusted and betrayed by David. And damn, Melanie, why'd you have to slap poor Katie so hard? With the exception of Tuck, Ben deserved better than these people. He was a good doggo. I don't know if Katie deserved to be slapped so hard, but I remember... Wasn't Katie trying... To get with the same guy, <laughs> Melanie Brad. was trying to get with. Can you blame her? Brad was the sexiest man. <laughs> Everyone was in love with Brad. But I think we can agree. Hashtag justice for Ben. <laughs> Poor dog. <laughs> when I was looking up Hobgoblin 2, I noticed a lot of the reviews were like, oh, this book was great. I remember I loved it when I was a kid. And then there would be like a space... <laughs> Just read it again. This book is awful. (laughs) Well, thanks for your comments. (laughs) We enjoyed reading them. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at dumpsterbookclub at gmail.com or join our group on Goodreads.